The word of God from Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. Jesus teaches the crowd. When he saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward in heaven is great. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. How's that? There we go. I am on now. If you didn't hear that, turn to Matthew 5, chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. We are opening our Bibles to a cross-cultural text this morning, a cross-cultural text. And cross-cultural experiences can be a bit disorienting depending on your familiarity or how different or similar that culture is to your own. My first cross-cultural experience was leading a ministry team to Argentina with Elizabeth. And the most in, uh, disorienting thing for me, other than the language, obviously, was the nonverbal greeting. And you really didn't want to mess up the nonverbal greeting. And let me explain why. Because with adults, whether male or female, the greeting was always the same. You would, rather than merely shaking hands... You would lean to the right and kiss the air near the cheek of the person you're greeting. Then you would quickly back up, move over, and kiss the air near the other cheek of the person you are greeting. And friends, let me say quite honestly and transparently that that's not something you want to mess up. It gets awkward really fast if you do. But in Argentina... That was the most normal way to greet someone. In fact, it's abnormal, it's weird, it's rude if you don't greet someone that way. Now, if Elizabeth and I walked in next Sunday morning and began to greet each one of you that way, that would just be weird, right? That would just be odd. Why? Well, because every culture has cultural norms, expectations of behavior that govern societal interactions, whether those norms are codified in laws, like driving on the right-hand side of the road, or whether those norms are just informal expectations. And if you wonder just how settled those societal norms are for behavior, well, just try cutting the drive through line at Chick-fil-A and find out just how settled those cultural norms are. Talk about crossing norms 
and upsetting the, the usual. Well, in the cross-cultural text in front of us, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, our cultural norms are being challenged. They're being tested. Abnormal norms are being expressed. And some are attractive and compelling to us, and others are a bit, well, even repulsive, perhaps. But these abnormal norms belong to the upside-down kingdom in which Jesus is king. And they're coming from the mouth of that king. And the big idea for us this morning, as it was for last week, as it will be for this next week, is this. Jesus the king calls you to embrace the abnormal norms of the upside-down kingdom. So before we dive into new material, let's review just briefly from last week, okay? Last week, we talked about these abnormal norms, first of all, being covenantal norms. Covenantal. The repeated word blessed in this passage goes back to the covenant between Yahweh and Israel. That covenant guaranteed that God would be their God, but that covenant couldn't change their hearts, only their behavior. And Israel failed again and again to keep that covenant. That is much of the story of the Old Testament. And so as part of God's covenant-keeping nature, God's judgment fell upon Israel in the form of curses that were actually a part of the original covenant. That was not God breaking his covenant, that was God continuing to keep his covenant. But even in judgment, God was not yet done with Israel. He promised a new covenant. You heard Jeff quote from Ezekiel 36 this morning in the assurance of pardon. Let me read the entire passage for you in context. This is what the Lord says. It is not for your sake that I will act, house of Israel, but for my holy name, which you profaned among the nations, you went out. For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will also sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. Rather, I will yeah, put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you. And cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. You will be my people. I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. Well, now here in Matthew 5, Jesus comes. And he is declaring to be the one bringing in this new covenant. And he's listing off these beatitude blessings as the one who brings this new covenant. A new covenant in which any who respond to him in faith will have his or her stony, stubborn heart removed and be given a pliable, trusting, obedient heart. A covenant in which cleansing is given and which God gives his spirit. So these beatitudes, these abnormal norms, something just happened, I think we're good. These abnormal norms are norms that come by way of God's covenant with us. And in that way, they are covenantal norms. 
But second, these abnormal norms are current. Bible scholar and theologian D.A. Carson helps us here. The blessings of the Beatitudes are kingdom blessings, and the Beatitudes themselves are kingdom norms. Though the full blessedness of those described in these Beatitudes awaits the consummated kingdom, they already share in the kingdom's blessedness insofar as it's been inaugurated. What is he saying? He's saying that the blessedness is real and current if the full expression of that blessedness is yet to be experienced. And we, you and I, are invited into current expressions and experiences of these abnormal norms and the blessings that they bring. So, these abnormal norms are covenantal, they're current, and third, they are countercultural. Countercultural. We looked at the first three Beatitudes last week, these abnormal norms last week. This week, we'll look at three more of these abnormal norms that Jesus calls us to embrace. Okay, so now for new material number one. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The words hunger and thirst communicate a sharp desire, an appetite, a yearning, a longing for something. The men and women of the Bible were very much like us, and they expressed their longings and yearnings in metaphor like Psalm 42. As a deer longs for flowing streams, so I long for you, God. I thirst for God, the living God. And we're familiar with this language today. Maybe you've heard a lawyer or an athlete described as hungry for a win. Someone else is thirsty for revenge. As a child of a large family, I hungered for attention. And some of you can't get Kevin McAllister out of your mind right now shouting to the West wet bandits, have you had enough or are you thirsty for more? Well, Jesus said, the blessed ones, the ones experiencing the good life are those whose soul level hunger and thirst, those whose desires are centered on a particular object, righteousness. Now in our context, righteousness is one of those words we can use in church and all nod our heads like we know what we're talking about. But what is righteousness? Now in the Bible, the word for righteousness can mean multiple things depending on the context. But here in this context, The word righteousness combines two ideas. First, it's the personal righteousness of right living. Living rightly in relationship to God, to others, to self, and to the entire created world. Right living in relationship. But second, it's the righteousness of justice in society more broadly, that right living getting worked out broadly at the society level. Or its lack of existence, its lack of right living being prosecuted. So to put it more plainly, the longing Jesus speaks of here is a longing both for personal holiness and 
social justice. My guess is I've triggered a few people by that claim, specifically by the phrase social justice. So let's lean into this for just a moment together. On the one hand, some churches and Christian leaders talk as if righteousness and holiness is always, only, ever, and only can be expressed personally. And in some ways, this line of thinking flows from the expressive individualism that drenches our culture. It's all about me being me. Now, to be clear, there are many times that righteousness in the Bible refers exclusively to a personal holiness, a right living in our relationships on an individual level. But in churches that emphasize this exclusively, there can be a condescending posture towards anyone even thinking about societal justice, however it's defined. And sometimes churches that exclusively emphasize personal holiness, faithful living, these kinds of churches move people towards a sort of isolationism, an individualistic faith, a, a new monasticism of sorts. At their worst, churches and Christians like this can be harsh and unloving. Now, as followers of Jesus, there's something here that we can affirm, the need for personal holiness, while rejecting much of the rest. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, there are many who will champion some version of social justice while caring very little for what God considers to be actual justice and holiness worked out. For example, think back to 2020. Yes, I'm going to go there. And the controversy over the phrase, you finished it in your mind, Black Lives Matter. At a point in our nation's history when there were numerous documented stories of genuine injustice against black individuals, every follower of Jesus should have been able to say with conviction the phrase, black lives matter, period. Because they do. But the question becomes, why did some Christians refuse to do so? Well, for some of them, not for all of them, but for some of them, it had to do with the Black Lives Matter organization the BLM organization, that organization which took in millions of dollars in the name of social justice based on their proximity to a very true statement, black lives do matter. But does the BLM organization stand for true justice? Justice as defined by God, the one who created all life, black and white, Asian, Latino, or otherwise? Well, as late as 2020, the BLM organization had detailed on their website that they, in part, wanted to, quote, dismantle cisgender privilege, end quote. In other words, 
BLM wanted to make God's design for sex and gender and faithful expression of it abnormal in society. The organization also wanted to, quote, disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure. In other words, BLM wanted to undermine the fact that God ordained the institution of marriage to be a monogamous relationship between a biological male and a biological female in which faithful sexual activity alone can be expressed. On the one hand, emphasis on personal holiness to the exclusion of societal justice. On the other hand, social justice, however defined, emphasized exclusively with no emphasis on personal holiness. So are these our only two options? Promoting personal holiness and disregarding social justice or flag-waving societal injustice and disregarding what God says is holy? Well, in 2020, Christians were, and by the way, still are, divided. And the reality is you can easily cherry-pick whatever scriptures you would like to, so, to support whichever direction you lean. Because the reality is there are people sitting in this room that lean one direction or the other. And we're good with that. We're okay with that. Personal holiness. For it is written, be ye holy because I am holy. 1 Peter 1, 16. Quoting Leviticus 19, 2. What about societal injustice? Yahweh says, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I can't stand the stench of your solemn assemblies, but let justice flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. Amos chapter 5. So which one of these does one who is living in the upside-down kingdom hunger and thirst for? Personal holiness or societal justice? And friends, the answer is both. D.A. Carson helps us again here. These people hunger and thirst not only that they may be righteous, i.e., that they may wholly do God's will from the heart, but that justice may be done everywhere. All unrighteousness grieves them and makes them homesick for the new heaven and the new earth, the home of righteousness. Satisfied with neither personal righteousness alone nor social justice alone, they cry for both. In short, they long for the advent of the messianic kingdom. Ultimately, they will be satisfied without qualification only when the kingdom is consummated. So a few moments ago, when I said that we're really okay with individuals leaning towards one or the other in our church family, what I mean by that is we need one another to sharpen each other to emphasize rightly both personal holiness and societal justice. Both matter. I was talking with a sojourner who recently got called in for jury duty this week. And I so appreciated this brother's perspective. In his mind, sure, it's a bit of a pain. It creates some schedule uncertainty to get called in for jury duty, right? 
But this brother was appreciating that we actually live in a country where it's our civic responsibility. It's something the government requires us to do to be involved in seeing that justice is appropriately meted out. Friends, this posture is hungering and thirsting for righteousness. So may we never intentionally try to get out of being a part of seeing justice meted out in our society. The norm of the upside-down kingdom is a longing for faithful living personally that spills out into societal relationships and into the very fabric of society, like on jury duty. And what's the result? What is the result of this abnormal norm? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for what? They will be satisfied without qualification. So, Sojourner, let me ask you. Between personal holiness and social justice, which do you lean towards? Which do you cheerlead? Which do you flag wave for? Which one causes you to instinctively say yes at the gut level? And the follow-up question, will you embrace the both and of this abnormal norm? Do your entertainment choices celebrate genuine righteousness? the good, the beautiful, the true? Or do they divide your heart by glorying in the sins for which Jesus died to save you from? Does your time in communion with God reflect that you actually care what he thinks about life, his perspective on what is right and just? As you drive through and live in broken communities, is your heart posture one of burning desire for justice to be executed more broadly? Does your pro-life stance embrace a holistic cradle, rather womb, to the grave perspective on the justice for human beings created in the image of God? Is your social justice edge sharpened by what God defines as just and righteousness, or has it been dulled by how fallen human beings define what is right and equitable and just? If your tendency is to trumpet personal holiness while disregarding societal justice, or to trumpet societal justice at the expense of personal holiness, friend, let me ask you, what might the Spirit of God be inviting you into in these moments? If it's not an either-or, but a both-and. Friends, without question, these are abnormal norms. Right here in our own city of Chattanooga. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for personal holiness and societal justice, for they shall be satisfied in the full expression of the kingdom. Next. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the merciful. 
Mercy is one of those beatitudes we probably cheerlead for. Even if we don't consider ourselves merciful, we often will appreciate someone else who demonstrates mercy, as long as they're merciful towards the people that we think they ought to be merciful towards. But notice, there is no qualification here. There is no object defined, no class of people we are told is the right kind of person to be merciful towards. It's categorical. Blessed are the merciful. So what is mercy? Well, Carson again helps us here with a definition. Mercy embraces both forgiveness for the guilty and compassion for the suffering and the needy. If you're looking for a free resource that will spur you on towards communion with God, I highly recommend Matthew Henry's commentaries. That may sound intimidating to you, but he's highly devotional. They're free online. You can go to BibleStudyTools.com and look them up. Listen to how he describes the merciful life. We must have compassion on the souls of others and help them. Pity the ignorant and instruct them. The careless and warn them. Those who are in a state of sin and snatch them as brands out of the burning. We must have compassion on those who are melancholy and in sorrow and comfort them. On those whom we have advantage against and not be rigorous or severe with them. On those who are in want and supply them. And if we refuse to do whatever we pretend, we shut off our compassion. Christian, I wonder if your coworkers or direct reports would describe you as merciful. I wonder if your children or your spouse would agree that merciful is a growing norm in your life. John Stott, John Stott remarks, We cannot claim to have repented of our sins if we are unmerciful towards the sins of others. Friends, consider this. What if God showed you as little mercy as you showed your spouse these past five years? Or as little mercy as you showed your adversaries or adversaries in the workplace or politically in the last five years? Friends, we each fall short in showing mercy. So we repent and we express faith again by returning to Jesus. And we receive the same mercy again and 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 again from him. And as we show mercy, we receive mercy from God. Our mercy does not cause God's mercy. Rather, God's mercy is the cause of our mercy. But as we are merciful towards others, we experience in a deeper way God's mercy towards us. That's the blessedness 
of this norm? Do you want to experience God's mercy towards you in deeper, more profound ways? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2. Blessed are the merciful without qualification, for they shall receive mercy. Countercultural abnormal norm number three. Blessed are the pure in heart. Now remember, Beatitudes are not official immigration papers or the visa you need for entrance into the upside down kingdom. These Beatitudes are norms of those already blessed, already living the good life in the kingdom. So blessed are the pure in heart. Matthew Henry writes, True Christianity lies in the heart, in the purity of the heart, the washing of that from wickedness. Now, if you hear in that statement that you are to wash your heart from wickedness and that's pure Christianity, you've missed the point. You can't wash your polluted heart with your polluted hands. It doesn't work that way. But if you have, been in, if you have embraced Jesus by faith, then you have been given a pure heart. God has sprinkled clean water on you and you are clean. This is our reality. But we also live in a broken reality. And that broken reality is that life in a broken world is inherently defiling. A broken world is no friend to help us on to God. So Christian, are you living towards and into that purity of heart that is yours in reality? Our impurity cannot change our position as sons or daughters of God. Aren't you thankful for that? But our impurity will surely affect our joy and delight in life and in living. And that defilement is not the life of flourishing that Jesus calls us into. Perhaps right now there are actions and images and words and lyrics that keep playing in your head from this week. Things that you saw, you said, you heard, you did that leave you feeling, well, far less than pure in heart today. Maybe your heart feels divided. Like there's a significant portion of it that wants to follow Jesus and him alone. And yet there's this other part that really wants to hang on to that personal autonomy. 
I felt that pull all week long. Purity of heart is a challenging norm. Well, friends, for sinners like us, repentance and confession and the resulting assurance of pardon that we get to participate in every single week comes like a billowing ocean wave of pure grace, cleansing our consciences from the defilements of the past week. But what about this coming week, church? Will you and I live into the purity of heart that is ours in reality because of Jesus? Now, there are many ways I, as a preacher, could cajole you into pursuing this purity of heart this week. And if you've been in church long enough, you have probably experienced all of those ways. Fear, unhealthy guilt, shame, manipulation, pressure, 13 stanzas of just as I am, you name it. But in our text, Jesus himself grants his followers a vision of what the pure in heart have to look forward to. It's a vision with enough juice to power centuries worth of Christians pursuing practical purity. And friends, it has enough voltage to power your pursuit this week of holiness. So what is this electric vision? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It's hard not to be moved with emotion by such a phrase as that. To see God. To see God. To see God. Reapprehend Him now only by trust, only by faith, not by sight. After all, we're told that the one who had come to God in Hebrews must believe that He is and that He rewards those who diligently seek Him. That's faith because we can't see him. But what is the end of that faith? God himself. We receive the object of our faith. And friends, if there's not enough glory there to draw your heart to worship right now in these moments, maybe it's because your heart is drawn so deeply to lesser glories, to the counterfeit glories of this world, so that the the real gold no longer thrills you. Or maybe it's because you do not yet understand just how glorious and beauty this beautiful, this mysterious and knowable being is. This being wrapped up in this one word, God. They shall see God. Indulge me one more quote from Matthew Henry. Notes. It is this perfection of the soul's happiness to see God. Seeing him as we may by faith in our present state is a heaven upon earth. And seeing him as we shall in the future state is the heaven of heavens. To see him as he is, face to face and no longer through a glass darkly. To see him as ours, 
and to see him and enjoy him. To see him and be like him and be satisfied with his likeness. And to see him forever and never lose the sight of him. This is heaven's happiness. And all that are pure in heart, all that are truly sanctified, have desires wrought in them which nothing but the sight of God will satisfy. And divine grace will not leave those desires unsatisfied. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. When Liz and I got back after spending three weeks in Argentina, we had to relearn how to appropriately greet people without creeping them out. The abnormal norm of a double cheek kiss greeting had become normal. Friends, if you are by grace, through faith, relating to God by means of his covenant with you, then these norms, while seeming and feeling at times abnormal, they will increasingly become normal. You're part of an upside-down kingdom. Or maybe we should say it this way, you are rather living right-side-up in an upside-down world. And while these abnormal norms will become increasingly normal for you, they will remain abnormal to those living in the kingdom of this world. And that's going to create tension. But following Jesus means embracing the upside-down kingdom life with its abnormal norms and the over-the-top crazy promises attached to them. So sojourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask in these moments together, that your spirit would be at work, that he would uncover those areas in each of our hearts in which these abnormal norms do not represent our heart postures. Father, we ask that these norms would actually become norm for each one of us and become the norm for how our church interacts how our church is represented, how Sojourn does life in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And Jesus, you're our king. You call us to embrace these abnormal norms. We ask that by your spirit, you would help us to do so. For we are weak and poor and needy. And we need you to look upon us and continue to pour out your grace. We ask these things based upon your finished work for us on the cross 
in your name, Lord Jesus, who with the Father and the Son, or Father and Spirit, reigns one God now and forever. Amen.